In life, the wise person, the person that's wise in their life, they learn from past mistakes. If you're wise, you'll learn from past mistakes. Now, there are two kinds of mistakes that you can learn from. You can learn from your own mistakes. This is called the hard way. <laughs> Learning from your own mistakes is the hard way. And we learn a lot of lessons the hard way, don't we? DC Talk memorialized this in a song. Some people got to learn the hard way. Yeah, I'm not a singer, I'm a preacher. The tragic life is the person that never learns from their mistakes. They don't even learn the hard way. <laughs> that would be a tragedy, a tragic life. Don't be that person. Now, the second way that you can learn from mistakes is by learning from the mistakes of others. This is the, shall we say, the easier way. I'm not going to call it the easy way because there's no easy way to learn from mistakes. There's the hard way, and I think there's the easier way. Learning from mistakes is not necessarily easy, but there's a hard way and an easier way. To learn from others' past mistakes, you need to read about what people did, the decisions that they made, and how it was a mistake and brought hardship and heartache into their life or into their family or into the nation, and then determine to learn from it. Why did the person or people do what they did? What did they do? Why should I never repeat these decisions and actions? This is the kind of the, some of the questions that you go through to learn from other people's mistakes. There are countless books on business from all kinds of successful business people, business leaders that will warn you of all the pitfalls and mistakes that are out there. Hey, if you're going to go out there in business, there are some things to learn from, and you can read about all the mistakes that others have made, and hopefully in reading some of those books, you can learn from other people, learn from their mistakes, and not, in that sense, repeat those mistakes. For Christians, for those of us who are spiritual people, the Bible contains past historical accounts of men and women who made bad choices. And, and it records for us the consequences that they faced because of the bad choices that they made. The children of Israel, the people of Israel, are a perfect example. Here you have the, 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 the children of Israel. We, we call them the children of Israel. Of course, they weren't children, but we call them the children of Israel because they're the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so they're the people of Israel. And here they had been led by Moses out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, out of this, this hardship and this bondage that they were in, led out across the Red Sea and into the desert where suddenly they were free and free to worship God. And it wasn't even a matter of perhaps a few days, maybe a couple of weeks before they were, were right back to worshiping false gods, right back into idolatry, right back into sexual immorality. And then almost two years later, they refused to trust God to go in and to possess the land of Canaan, even though God was giving them the land. And Paul picks up on this exact theme about 
the Israelites, the children of Israel, in 1 Corinthians 10, and he tells us that Israel is an example for us, an example of what not to do. 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to flip there real quick, you can, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, I'm going to read it for you. But this is what Paul says to us. He says, moreover, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank out of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Then verse 6, I will have up on the screen for you. He says this, Now these things become our example, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So what is Paul saying? He's utilizing Israel as an example. He's saying these are an example for us, basically, of what not to do. We can look back at the account of the Exodus. We can look back at the disbelief of the children of Israel that as they did not trust God to go in and take the land, as they went back to other gods, as they went back into sexual immorality and a whole host of problems that they did. We can look back on that. We can read it. There it is in Exodus. We can read all about it and we can see and look at it and learn from the mistakes. These things are an, these are an example to us, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So Paul's saying that Israel is an example of what not to do. In other words, we can learn the lessons of the errors of the Israelites. This brings us to our text tonight. We're looking at 2 Peter. The epistle of 2 Peter, we're in chapter 2, and Peter is warning Christians in the first century, and as we read it tonight, he's war warning Christians of the 21st century. He's warning us about false teaching and false teachers that bring this false teaching. Last week, we saw some of what the false teachers do, that they bring destructive doctrines into the church. And they do this because they come in, as Jude told us, they come in unaware, they come in by stealth. They come in unaware because they're, false they're, they're pastors. They come in as, as the pastors, as the teachers, as the ones that would be the authorities, perhaps, in the scriptures. But they're bringing a false doctrine, a destructive doctrine. They're denying Christ, and they're headed towards certain doom. In the rest of the chapter here, in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, Peter tells us more of what the false teachers do and more of what they teach and the results of their teaching. Christians here in the 21st century, we can learn from the errors of the false teachers of the first century. We can learn from these errors. We can learn from these mistakes. We will look at two specific lessons that we can learn from their mistakes and errors. First, don't be controlled by your drives. Don't be controlled by your drives. Let's take a look at it. Verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 2. It says this. But these, he's speaking of the false teachers, but these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness of those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. 
They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with man, a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are the wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wow, it's a heavy-duty stuff. It's some heavy-duty stuff, but it's stuff that we need to hear today. Amen? The point is this, and the lesson is this. Don't be controlled by your drives. Peter says here, the false teachers, they're like natural brute beasts. Natural brute beasts. These teachers, these false pastors, let me put it that way, who were false teachers, they thought that they were cool. They thought they had it together. They thought they had a message. But they were really just rebels. Rebels in rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion, it's a gr- that grievous sin. It's the rebellion. It, 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 it comes up by pride, manifests as rebellion. It's the most grievous of sins. It leads to devastation. It leads to destruction and eventually death. Now, I know that the rebel has been portrayed as the cool one. The cool one is the rebel. The cool one is the one that that kind of rebels against the authority. The rebel. The one who who bucked the, the authority. The one who did his own thing. We'd like to think is the the cool one being the rebel being the cool one. And this was pictured not so crisp, crystal clear, this going back a little bit, some of you way before your time, even a little bit before my time. But James Dean. James Dean was, you know, right? He was the, the rebel without a cause, right? The rebel without a cause. He was just a rebel and he was cool. And he, he had his jacket and his cigarette and the you know, whole thing. And, and, and he just kind of personified. It's just like a picture, really, a conic picture in our American culture of, of the rebel, of, 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 of rebellion, but, but it being cloaked in this coolness. He was cool. But those who will lead you into rebellion, anybody who will... Lead the cause of the rebel. Anyone who will lead you into rebellion against authority will not lead you into coolness. Will lead you into destruction. Will lead you into devastation. Rebellion against God is not cool. It's devastating. And even subtle rebellion can and will lead to destruction of various kinds. Destruction in your family, in your finances, in your relationships, and certainly in your relationship to God. I know that there's a little bit of James Dean in all of us. You say, no, there's no James Dean in me. Sure there is. There's a, there's a little, bit of, little, bit of, little bit of the rebel in all of us. The Bible makes, says it a little bit differently than I just said it. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. 
That was the Lord's way of saying, you got a little bit of James Dean in you. And so, rebellion, it, it will not lead you to cool, it will lead you to devastation. Now, rebellion is a rejection of authority. These false teachers had rejected true authority and were just rebels. Jude, also in his parallel passage to this, brings out this same idea of these rebels having rejected authority. It's like they, they, they thought they knew and understood what authority was all about, but yet they rejected it. They spit on it. They trampled on it. They reject the authority in their lives and speak evil against it, is the way he put it. This is Rebellion 101. Back in the 60s, everyone, you know, that was kind of the, that era of like, you know, the anti-authority. The seeds of this rebellion sown in that sense in the 60s. The rebellion of the 60s. Rejecting authority and speaking evil against it. This was being advocated from, I believe, this, the, Satan's strategy room. Reject authority and speak evil against it. This is the way, this is what we're going to do. And this is the playbook. Reject authority. Now we can stand up to injustice and there's a way to do that. But not simultaneously rejecting authority. Because that's a heart of rebellion not a heart for justice. And I think that plays into a little bit about what we're looking at right now across our nation. Now, Peter says here in verse 12, he says, but these were like natural brute beasts. Natural brute beasts. Natural in the Greek is the word is physikos. It's actually where we get our word for physical. And it means in the, in the natural manner by nature, under the guidance of nature, the by the aid of bodily senses. So a natural brute beast, a physical brute beast. Brute is a word that means, it means destitute of reason, contrary to reason, absurd. And beast is, was a living being. The word is zoon in the Greek. And so this is, a, this is a physical being who has just rejected and gone in, in an absurd direction, contrary to reason. Being only aided by the bodily senses. Because we see this in the living creatures. In the animal kingdom. Those that are controlled by their bodily senses. The drives that we, that we possess in our, in our body. There are many. And I think the lesson that we can learn from the false teachers is not to be people who are controlled by those drives. We recognize those drives. We, we control them with the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We bring them under subjection, but we're not controlled by our drives. These guys, he's saying, are the opposite of that. He's basically saying they're not spiritual people. This is as if to say, no, they're not spiritual people. 
They're brute beasts. They're physicos. They're controlled by the bodily senses. They're led astray. Not in the spirit. They're not led by the spirit. They're led and governed by the physical. And those, those who should have walked in the spirit. Amen? Should have been led by the spirit. But they weren't. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He goes on, verse 17, for the, the, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There is kind of a battle, really, <laughs> of flesh and spirit. And Peter is telling us that these people that should have been spiritual are not spiritual. They're natural brute beasts. He goes on and he talks about how they're, they're carousing in their own deceptions. They're carousing in their own deceptions. These ungodly false teachers are dangerous and a corrupting presence in the body of Christ, he says, not only deceiving others, but deceiving themselves also because they're just carousing amongst the people and they're just kind of being led in the physical, not in the spirit. He goes on. He says they have eyes full of adultery. They're, they're led by their, by their, they're controlled by their drives and, and, and to satisfy the lust of the flesh. Their heart is set on the flesh and their eyes on adultery. They prey on the unstable. He says they entice unstable souls. One of the commentators on this um, having eyes full of adultery. One commentator put it this way concerning the eyes of adultery. He says, literally, Peter wrote that their eyes are full of an adulterous woman, to say it that way. Quote, they lust after every girl that they see. They view every female as a potential adulteress. Now, we know, we know this type of thing is out there, but it... it, it it shouldn't be in the church, and it should, certainly shouldn't be in the church leadership. And part of our culture is caving in to this as if it needed any help, but there's so much more help now that we've got all these gadgets, and we've got the internet, and we've got all this stuff, we've got all this access that is literally, I'm reading the articles that are coming out, I'm reading the studies that are coming out, is literally corrupting the minds Literally down to the synapses, corrupting the brains and the minds and, the, and, and even in the physical realm, corrupting young men and even young ladies with this type of mentality. Think about it, folks. We're reading this. This, this was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Peter. And yet here we sit today. And the message for the first, the 21st century Christian is don't be controlled by your drives. Learn, you, if you're a Christian, you're a spiritual person and you need to learn how to walk in the spirit. You need to learn how to feed the spirit. You know how to feed the flesh because I'm sure that you, did any, anybody fast all day today? Anybody? No, you got up and you fed this flesh that, that I did. 
I got up and I had a cup of coffee. And I had a, a cinnamon swirl bagel with some Philadelphia cream cheese on it. I put it in the toaster. And I fed, and I fed the flesh. But what happens is we feed the flesh, and that's good. But what this is talking about is being driven and going out of control with the natural drives that we all possess. Going out of control with those natural drives and being not the spiritual people that we should be, but being under just led, led and controlled by the drives. Peter goes on, he says, they have trained, they, are, they, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. They have eyes full of adultery. They have a heart tr- literally trained. It's, it's as if they, their heart, the center of the, your heart in the Bible is the center of who you are. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, right? With that, that's to say everything that we are. And, and, and Peter's saying these, these folks, these false teachers, their heart is, has been literally trained in covetousness. Now, to have a heart trained in covetousness, I mean, you have to literally... I'm, I'm, I'm thinking everybody here can identify with what Peter's saying. There's times in our lives where Perhaps we've been out of control in our hearts and covetousness. You know, it's the 10th commandment. You know, there's 10 commandments. You get to the 10th one, thou shalt not covet. You read the letters of Paul and Paul's going through this whole thing. And, you know, you, there's, there's a passage where Paul is basically giving you his resume about how, like, you know, I was a Pharisee concerning the law. I was a Jew. I was the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, I was like the guy. But it was the commandment against covetousness that, that, that broke him down. And he looked inside of his own heart and he realized that he was laid bare before the law. It transgressed it. Now to have your heart trained in covetousness, this is just, just letting yourself go. Just feeding the sinful desires, just feeding the flesh, just, just looking at the world like your own buffet. And just having that heart trained in covetousness. Wow. They are, they are equipped, but not for ministry, only for selfish gain, and they are truly accursed. We all, we, all are train, we all are training our hearts for something. Christian, we got to realize every decision that we're making right now, hopefully we're learning from some mistakes. Hopefully we're learning from past, our own past mistakes and we're learning from the mistakes of others and, and we're growing because our hearts are being trained in a direction. The question tonight is, which direction is your heart being trained? Is it being trained in covetousness or is it being trained to walk in the spirit, to follow the Lord, to be a person of the word? This is, is spiritual food. Jesus said the words I speak to you are life and spirit. 
And the person who just is in, in the word of God is a person who's feeding the, the spirit and giving place to the spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit. This is what I'm talking about. Amen? The Holy Spirit of God who know you not, Christian, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That the Spirit of God dwells in you? Wow. The idea of this being trained is, it's, 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 it's a sports metaphor. You know, Paul's usually the one making the sports analogies, right? Sport, he, Paul has several sports analogies, running, marathon, boxing, right? This is a sports analogy. It's a, tra- it's a training. It's a term in, in the Grecian games, they would exercise themselves towards, you know, whatever sports. We just had the Olympics, right? And so you, we saw, you know, if you watched any of the Olympics, you saw how they were training for their, their particular sports. You know, like a Michael Phelps, right? You know? And we all were like, yeah, I'd like to be Michael Phelps because I'd like to eat 12,000 calories a day and it not affect me, you know? Well, yeah, if you spend 16 hours in the pool all day going back and forth, yeah, I guess you can eat whatever you want to. But it's, just, it's exercising. Now he goes on here, look, he says, um, he says, they have forsaken the right way, verse 15, and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. The way of... Yeah, it's a, it's a talking donkey. Way before Shrek. <laughs> Peter calls it the way of Balaam. Jude says it, it's the greed of Balaam. And Balaam throughout the scripture, you see him pop up in numbers, but he becomes kind of the stereotypical false teacher. Because he was this soothsayer, he was this prophet in that sense, but he was motivated by greed, money, and he ultimately committed one of the most heinous things because he got... It, he, he counseled Balak, the king of the Midianites, who, who was petrified of, the, of the, the Israelis, who were a massive people in the desert, in the plains of, you know, acacia groves there, right? And so Balak hires Balaam to come in and curse Israel. And just we'll spend a couple minutes here and we'll move on but there's a lot you can do like a whole several teachings on Balaam and everything about that story it's about three or four chapters there in in numbers but so Balak brings him in brings Balaam in says I want you to curse Israel I want you to put a curse on him I want you to speak a curse on Israel and of course he can't do it he can't speak a curse every time he opens his mouth to give a oracle or a prophecy it's just this blessing over Israel So finally, after he is not able to curse them, he gets with Balak and he says, okay, can't curse these guys. That's not going to work. Plan B. Here's plan B, Balak. You want to defeat these guys, the Israelites? 
I want you to get round up all of your young ladies. Get them all prettied up and send them into the camp of the Israelis and entice them in to sexual immorality and ultimately into that. And that's what, that's what they do. That's what he does. And this is, the, this, is, this is all part of the grievous sin of Balaam. And he did all this for greed. He did all this out of the motivation for money. Now, if you do that whole study, it's a great study. The Phineas, the, grand, the grandson of Aaron, he, okay, what happened was there broke out a curse upon the people. God brought a judgment on the people for being enticed into this idolatry and the sexual immorality with the Midianite girls. And they were dying, and they were dying. And the grandson of the high priest, Phineas, he literally takes up a spear. You read this in the Bible. And he literally goes in and, and spears the couple, like literally in the act. Like shish kebabs them. Yes, this is in the Bible, folks. I always say to people, I always say to people, read your Bibles. It's full of very interesting stuff. People actually knew what was in the Bible. You'd be amazed. But the 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 what what Phineas had was a passion for the Lord. He had he had this drive for the Lord, he had this passion for the Lord, and Balaam had brought this enticement and this whole debacle upon the people of Israel. So throughout uh, the epistles and, you know, the various apostles uh, and even Jesus himself um, calls out this doctrine of Balaam in his letters to the churches in Revelation. So this is a, this is a severe issue that is, is a recurring issue. And so this is the greed of Balaam that Peter talks about. And the lesson in all of it, and we'll move on, but the lesson in all of it is not to be controlled by your drives. Um, you know, there is a natural, there is a natural uh, drive to, to work and to take care of your family and to, to earn a living, and there's a natural drive to even do well. I think people have different levels of, of, you know, income, you know, what's satisfactory to them. You know, there's some people that are like, you know, no, I, I, I want to do well. I want to I go to school and I want to do this and I want to learn how to do this and I want to learn business and I want to, and I want to do well in life. There's other people that are content with, with much less. Then there's greed on top of that. There's the lust of the flesh in the, in the sexual area, and we've, we've covered that, and on and on and on and on. And these false teachers were just, he called them natural brute beasts. And we're not to be that. We're to be spiritual men and women of God. Amen? Amen. Now, the second thing that we can learn from them is to live in the truth and freedom. To live in truth and freedom. Let's pick it up, verse 18 
and finish out this chapter tonight. Peter says this, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have accept, actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. Wow, again, heavy-duty stuff. But the lesson we can learn, Christian, is to live in truth and freedom. To live in truth and freedom. Peter tells us more about the message of the false teachers. He says they spoke great swelling words of emptiness. <laughs> I, I, I read that and I was like, wow. Very apropos for our times. Great swelling words of emptiness. The words are swelling. They're big. They're sound smart. But in, when you get in there, there's nothing to it. It's emptiness. The word emptiness here is a Greek word that means, it means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness, perverseness, depravity, um, frailty, want of vigor. <laughs> there's, nothing, it's, it's, there's nothing in it. The message of the ungodly false teachers is empty of real spiritual content, though it is swollen by big words. And if there are false teachers in the world today, and there are, their words are the same. Big swollen words, big all kinds of stuff. But emptiness. Emptiness. And there are places that, you know, will not even go, you know, there, there are many places where they won't even go through a passage like this. They'll say, oh, the, the people of today don't need to be, they don't need to read a passage like this. We need to bring them all in and just encourage everybody and just lift it. I'm all for that too, and we should do that. We should encourage everybody. And God, God is, the, is the greatest encourager that there is. But his, his, his book has a lot of encouragement in it, and it also has a lot of warning in it. It has a lot of historical record in it that we can learn of what not to do, which is what we're trying to do tonight. Amen? Yes, yes. And that's why Paul said that all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for the believer. Amen? He didn't just say, like, you know, you know those passages in Psalms where David says, you know, he's the glory and the lifter of my head. Those are profitable for the believer. No, he said all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture. And what was he talking about? What was Paul talking about? The New Testament hadn't been written. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Torah. He's talking about Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's what he's talking about. We just went through some of it tonight, some Numbers. The false teachers, they had this, this big verbose language, these big uh, swollen words, but their message is empty, and it's so empty 
that, and, and, it, and it promised all this great freedom and liberty and all this wonderful, you know, you're going to just be blessed and free and live free and all this wonderful stuff. And Peter says that it, it didn't bring about any of that. In fact, it brought about the exact opposite. And this is what I touched on last week. That, that it didn't bring about the freedom that Christ offers. It actually brought them back into bondage. And here Jesus is offering his message is about truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And this message of the false preachers, the false teachers, was about um, something else because it brought people into bondage. It brought them into the literal bondage that these false preachers were in themselves. And, and through deception and through whatever, we're hiding all that. They promised truth and freedom, but what they gave was the opposite. Look at verse 19. While they, became, while, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves and corrupt, and of corruption. For by, who, for by whom a person is overcome, by him he is brought into bondage. And that's why we need to be careful. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, test all things, hold fast to what is true, right? The Bereans in the book of Acts were those people that, you know, studied up on the scriptures to make sure that what the, even the apostles were telling them was lining up, was a solid word of truth. Amen? And that's why it's important. We should be Bereans. Every Christian should be a Berean. Say, so what's that? It was a city called Berea. The Christians there were these people that studied up. And that way they could identify and know. Being brought into bondage. Now the, the next verses here, and we'll kind of move to, to a close, but the next verses from 20 on down to 22. If you, just in reading, and I don't know if these thoughts popped into your head as we read them, but they appear, they seem to suggest that someone can lose their salvation. That you can come into the way of righteousness, that you can come into that and, 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 and then digress and become entangled in the pollution of the world. Look at that, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so it seems to suggest that they had escaped it, right? Seems to suggest they had escaped. If they have escaped, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And then he goes on, to say that, you know, for the, for the end of them is worse than it was in the beginning. Now, this kind of gets you into, you know, and it's quarter to eight, right? <laughs> so this kind of just begins to touch on at least and get you into at least the discussion of the doctrine of eternal security and you know, what some have called, you know, once saved, always saved, or whatever, at least the, the opposing theological positions of Calvinism and Arminianism. Are you familiar with these terms? 
Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay, we're not going to get deep down into there. We don't have time to like start a discussion on that tonight. Maybe we should at some point. I will say this about that discussion. The deeper you get into it, the more you feel like you're in a, a, a war of words and a semantical labyrinth of craziness. Now, the, those in the once saved, always saved camp will argue that there's nothing. Here's the basic argument. God saved me by, by virtue of nothing that I did. There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. There's, therefore, there's nothing I can do to unearn my salvation. This is, the, this is kind of the basic gist. They, they, might, they might present it in a little bit more precise way and a little bit more of a way of, you know, great words and whatever. But I'm, I'm kind of bringing it down, down home tonight. The, que- the thing that I come back with on that point is that um, I don't think it's ever, a, it's not a matter of earning your salvation. I think that seems to be pretty clear in scripture, that you can't earn your salvation, right? I mean, there's, we have some pretty clear scriptures that, you know, just in reading them without any exegesis or, you know, further study that seem to be pretty clear about how that salvation is a free gift of God and that it's not of ourselves lest any man should boast, but it's a free gift of God, right? Paul told the Ephesians. Seems to be pretty clear that you can't earn your salvation. And I would also agree that, that you know, just as you can't earn your salvation, if you go out tonight, you leave the service, and you go out tonight and you get trip and fall into, into a night of sin. You know, you just kind of lose it and you just kind of end up, you know, into a night of sin. I would also agree that that would not bring you to a place of being outside of salvation or having lost your salvation. Okay? Now, there, there are those that that might teach that, and that's what we might call hyper-Arminianism. All right? But I've come to understand this whole part of the debate complete, it literally completely misses the point because the more I've studied the Scripture, I've, understand, I've understood these things, that Jesus saves, that God's sovereignty, in his sovereignty, he gives his grace and the gift of God, and this is true 100%. However, that also seems to be true in the scriptures that, that we choose, that we're asked to humble ourselves, that we're asked to call upon the name of the, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that we're, that we're asked to, in a, in a demonstration of our will and our kind of movement towards the Lord of saying, I, I, I want you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I can't save myself. I need a savior. I'm a sinner and I stand before you completely wrecked. And I need you, God. It seems to me that this is what the scriptures teach and that we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and we call upon his name and and he he picks us up out of the miry pit and he puts us on puts our feet upon a rock and he saves us and he calls us out of darkness and he and he does all that incredible stuff that we sing about. Amen? That's what he does. But it seems to me that there's something to 
also in Scripture. That there's continued exhortation about continuing in the faith, about not becoming disloyal to the Lord. There's a difference between me going out tonight and committing 15 sins and me like in six months from now saying, you know what, I'm no longer loyal to the Lord. I'm no longer loyal to Christ. See, see it seems to me that that's two completely separate things. On one hand, my sins are totally forgiven. I'm clean before the Lord. He loves me. I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm on my way to heaven. My sins are forgiven. John tells us, you know, if we claim to not have sin, that we deceive ourselves. And if we sin, if we do sin, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if you do sin, we have an advocate, the the. the the, the, the perfect Christ Jesus, the, the Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's a perfect advocate for us, if you do sin. But it seems like to me that Scripture presents a real difference between someone sinning and becoming, perhaps falling into sin. I read it this afternoon in the Proverbs. I looked it up. The righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. Amen? Seems like to me that there's something different in that whole process and the person who literally becomes disloyal to Christ. I'm, I no longer serve the Lord. I'm no longer a part of Christ. I'm disloyal. I've returned to the pollution of the world. And this is what Peter's saying. Having Come to the knowledge of the, Savior, of the Savior of Jesus Christ and having returned and become entangled in the pollution of the world. And then he does use two Proverbs to kind of close off his case. He says, um, Proverbs 26, 11, you'll see it on the screen. Peter quotes it here. As a dog refer, uh, returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly, is what the proverb says. As a dog returns to his own vomit, Peter says, verse 22, and... And as a sow, a pig, right, having washed to wallow in the mire. And, and, and this whole thing. And this is a echoing of the words of Christ, really, where Peter goes on and he says, he says, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And if, if you're a Bible, if you've been around the Bible a little bit, that, that rings some bells, doesn't it? Because isn't that what Jesus said about the, the man who had a demon? The demon was cast out. The, the, house, the house, his temple really was cleared out. But it wasn't filled up with anything else. And so instead of one demon coming back, the Bible tells us seven demons came back. And Jesus tells us that the end of the man is worse than the beginning. He had one demon, now he has seven demons. And, the, and I'll end with this. The distinction is this, that the Bible teaches us that we're born into sin, Right? Uh, David said in the Psalms, I, in, in iniquity, 
I was conceived, right, in iniquity. In that sense, because if the doctrine of original sin is true, we, everyone here has been born into sin. We were born into sin. We were born in with a sin nature. Our parents didn't have to teach us how to sin. We just were naturally good at that. We're naturally good. Now, if you come to Christ, if, you, if someone presents you the gospel and you come to Christ and you come out of that and then you say, you know what? No, I, I, I don't want that. I, I, I want to return to the pollution of the world. Peter seems to be saying that the end of this man is worse than the beginning because the, at, at first you were born into sin. Now this person is actually choosing to go back to the pollution of the world. You're now choosing this. You were born into it. You were saved out of it. You were saved out of your predicament by Christ. But now you seem to be choosing it, being once again entangled in the pollution. You were entangled. You were, we, we were all entangled in the pollution of the world. Why? Because we were conceived in iniquity. We were conceived in sin. But to come unto the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to turn and once again embrace and become entangled in the pollution of the world. It seems to be that Peter's saying the end of that person is worse than where they were. Amen? Now we can learn these lessons. The lesson here, I think, is to live in truth and to live in freedom. To embrace the truth of God's word and to live in truth in your life. Now the saddest thing that we can do, one of the saddest things we can do is to deceive ourselves. We have a way of deceiving ourselves. Other people can deceive us and we can be under deception because other people have brought deception into our lives. But I think that there's widespread deception that has been brought on, the people have brought upon themselves. And they, they have to come out from underneath any and all forms of deception. And Jesus is the way to do it. Because he's the light. He's the light of the world. He's the life. He is the life. He's the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. Amen? So, amen. Learn the lessons. Learn from the lessons of the false teachers.